We've been seeing that the whole service really has been crafted around Reformation Day and its themes. And there are a lot of themes to Reformation Day, and we're going to be looking at one from uh, at least giving the context in Jude and verses 3 through 4. <clears throat> Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. It is our desire uh, to not only come into agreement with it, but Father, to have it uh, be lived out for the confidence that the reformers had to be our confidence uh, and for the, uh, the ability to apply your scriptures in every area of life uh, to be our ability as well. We pray that you would bless this, your congregation, for increased and continued reformation in our own lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as some of you know, I was a speaker in Morton, Illinois, and the subject of the whole conference was the uh, Protestant Reformation in France and the Christians there who were known as Huguenots. And I mentioned on Friday that you can pronounce it either way, Huguenot or the English pronunciation is Huguenot. But in any case, I have grown to love these French Christians from the 1500s and the 1600s that I've had to do a lot of research on. They were a phenomenal testimony to Christ. And I want to start the sermon by telling you about another contribution that I've not mentioned in any of the uh, lectures that I've given so far. They gave an incredibly clear exposition of how Protestantism was Catholic and how Romanism was not. They showed how the Reformation was upholding doctrines which were really at the heart of the true Catholicism, uh, what uh, constitutes true Catholicity, and why Rome was a cult that had abandoned the Catholic faith and could not truly, truthfully, uh, affirm any of the creeds. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I think the Huguenots did a slam-dunk job. They did a fantastic job uh, of demonstrating that the Romanists were either deceived which in many cases was true, or they were outright lying when they said that they believed in a holy Catholic faith. Now, let me say a little bit about that word Catholic because it freaks some people out. Uh, Catholic comes from the Greek word katholikos, and um, it's a very common uh, word in, in uh, the Old Testament uh, Septuagint, and uh, it's uh, very common in early uh, Christianity. Uh, it means common, what is agreed to, what is universally accepted. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who immediately assume uh, that Catholic means Roman Catholic. And Protestants say that that's not the case. Eastern Orthodox uh, would not agree that it's Roman Catholic. They say, no, it's Eastern Orthodox Catholic. Uh, but Catholic simply means universal, what's commonly agreed to. And a lot of unread evangelicals get freaked out over this term because I think that they've not 
they've not studied the history of, uh, of the meaning of it. It is my contention, and it was the contention of all of the reformers, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Melanchthon, Bucer, Beza, Pierre Vallée, uh, Philippe Duplessis Mornay, any, any of those reformers you, you want to think about, they all said that they were not bringing anything fundamentally new. They said that it was the Romanists, whom, by the way, they preferred to call the Papists, it was the, uh, because they're following the Pope rather than following Christ, right? They said it's the Papists who have really brought in the new heresies and they have abandoned the Catholic doctrines. Well, if that is true, it automatically means that there's not a single ancient creed that Rome can honestly affirm because they all testify to believing in Catholic doctrine, Catholic faith, a Catholic church. The Reformed confessions do that. Now, this might come as a surprise to you, but you are far closer to the theology of the church in the first 12 centuries than Rome is. You're far closer to their doctrines uh, than, than Rome is. Um, Rome has changed their view of authority, scripture, Mary, justification, the Lord's Supper, church government, officers, prayer, the dead, and many other things. And really, it is so easy to demonstrate that they are the ones who have abandoned the original Catholic teachings on those issues. Now, some of you might wonder why we even need to go through this exercise uh, on the three tests of Catholicity. Why don't we just believe the Bible? That's all that's uh, required, right? Uh, it, 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 why do we have to mess with whether a doctrine is Catholic or not? Well, there are a couple of reasons why we really do need to mess with it. And the first is that the Bible commands us to. These three tests are biblical tests, and the reason they had to already introduce tests of how you know which doctrine is right and which doctrine is not in the Bible is because there were heretics already who were deceiving all of the churches. That was when the great apostasy happened. The great falling away happened right during the time of the apostles leading up to uh, 70 AD, and there needed to be a way of checking who was right and who was wrong. So individual understanding is not enough. Instead, Scripture says we need to look to a multitude of counselors, and Isaiah calls us to look to the old paths. And Paul had the Bereans checking out everything by the Old Testament Scriptures, so those are really old paths, right? But they individually did have to be involved. Now, I want you to look with me uh, very briefly at Ephesians chapter 4. This is a passage that talks about the church growing in time into maturity. And earlier in the chapter, he talks about there being one Lord and one faith. Now, that does not grow. That does not change. That's always been the same, but our understanding of it does. And in verse 7, Paul affirms that each believer has a responsibility to try to understand the faith. But to each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, the each one of us shows that by God's grace, uh, God makes every believer competent to at least be a Berean, okay? Now, if that's all that he had said, we might assume that it's just me, Jesus, and the Bible, and uh, I don't need to look to teachers or anything else. But knowing the weakness of each person, verse 11, speaks of more gifts that God has given to the church. Verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets. So that would be the apostolic and the scriptural test. But then come 
evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, they can make mistakes too, uh, as well as we can make mistakes. They are designed to help equip us. And so verse 12 says, all of those were given, all of those officers were given for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. <coughs> now, to edify means to build up, just like you gradually build a house. Gary talked about that earlier. Uh, now, here is the thing. Just as your individual sanctification is a growth over time, the same is true of the body of Christ. It started off with, you know, doctrinal immaturity in the first century and gradual wrestling with doctrines over time until the church will eventually uh, be fully unified in everything at some point in history in the future. Now, the apostles had the whole body. They had the whole ball of wax, but the early church got confused. They got messed up. So look at verses 13 through 16. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, or you can translate that to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now I tend to think we're still in the toddler stage of the church's uh, development, uh, we've matured a fair bit, but the worldwide church still has a long ways to grow. But in any case, this is one of many scriptures that speaks of this gradual growth of the understanding of the church of that faith, that one faith that has been delivered to the saints by the apostles and by the, the prophets, the Catholic faith. Now, over the past 2,000 years, a lot of doctrines have been settled by the creeds. Can they be mistaken? Yes, they can. But in our interpretation, we should put more weight on things that the church has already agreed to than, on, uh, than we would on doctrines that the church is not yet unified on. And we won't have time to fully develop. I'll give you some more scriptures, but we won't have time to fully develop uh, the exegesis of the tests of Catholicity. But interestingly, even though there is debates between Rome and Eastern Orthodoxy and the Coptic Church and, you know, various uh, uh, branches of the church out there on what constitutes uh, Catholic doctrine, there is no debate on what the tests are. The scriptures are so clear on these three tests. The early church fathers are so clear. The discussions that surrounded the, the various creedal debates, they're so clear on these three tests that everybody's agreed on it. They agree, okay, these are tests. They just disagree as to who, which church really matches up and, 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 and fits them. And um, as you can already guess from the outline in your hands, I believe that many modern evangelicals fail these uh, tests just as much as Rome or the Eastern uh, Orthodox Church uh, have. Irenaeus was a disciple of the Apostle John, so he was a really, really early uh, church father. And the way he worded these three tests in 110 A.D. is he said, First, 
The doctrine needs to be apostolic. And when you read his discussions of apostolic, you understand he, 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 he's believing that it needs to be found clearly in the Bible. And since the apostles upheld the Old Testament, it's the whole Bible that he's talking about. Second, it had to have been taught by others in the church as being biblical, especially by churches established by the apostles. And then third, it had to be universally accepted as being biblical, not to be not in order to be true, but in order to be Catholic, okay? And uh, keep in mind that the church's official or creedal understanding of the Catholic faith will grow. It'll be added to over time. But I want you to notice that the Scripture is the criteria for all three tests. Uh, it's the Scripture understood individually, historically, and creedally. And so the Lutheran reformer Melanchthon, who was Martin Luther's right-hand man, said this back in 1519. He said, it is not necessary for a Catholic to believe any articles of faith than those to which Scripture is a witness. He was tracing this doctrine of Catholicity all the way back through church history, and he claimed that any traditions that add to the Bible are by definition outside the scope of Catholicity. That, that was his, uh, his, his conclusion. Now, obviously, the, the Romans would debate with him on that, but for purposes of this introduction, I want to point out that there are many Reformed and Lutheran and other scholars who say we need to get back to using this word Catholic. We should not be embarrassed by it. In fact, this is the strongest argument that we have against Rome and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now let's uh, read Jude 3 and 4 again. By the way, the epistle of Jude is called a Catholic epistle. You know, they, you, you heard about the Catholic epistles. Called Catholic because it is written to a common church about a common doctrine and a common salvation. Okay, let's start reading at verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, in keeping with this verse... The early church fathers said that the Catholic faith was apostolic and flowed from what the apostles wrote in the scriptures. Okay, apostolic and scriptural were synonyms for them, and we'll see that more fully a bit later. Second, Catholic doctrine was called primitive or ancient or had the test of antiquity in that the church has always held to it at some time because this was the faith once for all delivered to the saints when? It had already been done by the apostles. It's in the first century, right? So if you see a doctrine that has never arisen in the first uh, 1,500 years or first 1,000 years or first 500 years of church history, be extremely suspicious about it, okay? Because this was an ancient doctrine. This, uh, this Catholicity was a faith delivered in the first century. Third, being ancient does not make it Catholic, because the heresies were ancient too, weren't they? Uh, these were people who uh, held to heresy even during the time that the apostles set up the first churches. So look at verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So no one of these three tests is sufficient to, to say, yeah, this is Catholic teaching. 
They all need to be brought together. But the Catholic faith is not something newly invented. It has always been around, and our understanding of it cannot be private. If your doctrine does not have universality, antiquity, and the consent of scriptures, in other words, you can see it clearly in the scripture, then you need to be wary. It doesn't mean it's not true. Uh, you may find it uh, among the fathers, but it's not yet universally been declared to be true. Maybe a, a couple thousand years from now, uh, they're going to have all of these things put together uh, because, uh, again, the, the church's understanding of Scripture uh, does grow over time, according to Ephesians 4. But it just gives us a sense of humility when approaching doctrine. And the Huguenots applied these three well-known tests to many doctrines. For example, uh, Philippe Duplessis Mornay wrote a book on the Lord's Supper that quoted, it gave 5,000 extended quotes from the church fathers demonstrating that the Protestant doctrine of the Lord's Supper has always been in the first thousand years of history, and actually he went even beyond that, first 1,200 years of history, has always been there. It's the Catholic faith. And it's Rome who deviated from what has been the universal testimony on the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And they did the similar thing with many other doctrines. Now, um, some months ago, I preached on sola scriptura. This is the bedrock doctrine for the Reformation, and it's one that Romanists love to debate on. And so we're going we're to do an exercise this morning. We're going to use these three tests to show that Rome is a cult that has abandoned the Catholic faith, and the Reformers were in the mainstream of following the Catholic faith. And there are six parts to the doctrine of sola scriptura that you see in your outline there. First part, uh, which was abandoned by Rome, was the universal belief by the early church that the scripture is the only authority. Rome denied the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura, in other words, of scripture alone as an authority. Uh, for example, the Second Vatican Council said, the church does not draw her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Hence, both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal feelings of devotion and reverence. Well, then they go on and say, well, it's not just tradition, it's also the Pope and it's church councils. But oral tradition definitely being in there. Now, Roman apologist Carl Keating wrote, fundamentalists say the Bible is the sole rule of faith. Everything one needs to believe to be saved is in the Bible, and nothing needs to be added to the Bible. Catholics, on the other hand, say the Bible is not the sole rule of faith, and that nothing in the Bible suggests it was meant to be. The true rule of faith is Scripture plus, and then he goes on to add all of these other authorities. And the Huguenots said, no way. That is not the Catholic faith. The Catholic faith has always said you may never go beyond the Scriptures. What's the first test? Well, the first test is, can we see that it's apostolic? Can we see it in, in the Bible? And I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. This verse says that the church may not go beyond anything uh, in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us. Now the us is the apostles, and so he's about to give apostolic Catholicity. What is it? That you may learn in us 
not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. And I want you to notice especially that phrase, that you learn in us not to go beyond what is written, or think beyond what is written. And if you do go beyond what is written, you are arrogant, you are puffed up against one another, you have taken too much upon yourself. Uh, James 4 says that there is only one lawgiver and he has given us his law in the scriptures. Popes and councils cannot uh, be lawgivers. And so it has the consent of the scripture. Scripture says that it alone is the authority. And some people might say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody interprets the scripture differently. And uh, the question is, did the church fathers interpret it that way? And we can say absolutely yes. This was not some lame-brained idea that John Calvin or Philippe Dupressis Mormonet or some of these other guys came up with. Uh, Jacques Lefavre de Tappel was uh, one of the earliest ones uh, in France. It meets the tests of antiquity. And I've got numerous quotations, but let me give you one from Cyril of Jerusalem in the early uh, 300s because his catechism was used all over uh, the empire. He said, we ought not to deliver even the most casual remark without the Holy Scriptures, nor be drawn aside by mere probabilities and the artifices of argument. Do not then believe me because I tell you these things unless you receive from the Holy Scriptures the proof of what is set forth. In fact, his whole essay was defending the idea that he had no authority and no one else had any authority except for what God has given through the scriptures. It was sola scriptura in terms of authority. And he's one of the most respected of church fathers. Now, in my debates with Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox on their forums over the past uh, two decades, I've gotten into a detailed analysis of the church fathers from the first 1,000 years, and here's what happens. I start debating with them. I say, first of all, I'm a Catholic, and uh, they're not and that gets them mad, and so then a debate ensues. And then we talk about a doctrine. I will prove things from the Scripture. They get really frustrated, and they say, well, you can't understand the Scripture except through the eyes of the church fathers. And then I give an avalanche of quotes from the church fathers, and they'll debate with that for a while, and when they lose that debate, they say, well, you can't even understand the church fathers unless you're in the church. And so they're appealing uh, to church authority uh, even to understand the, the church fathers. And I proceed to pull out quotes from creeds and councils, and that's the third test of Catholicity. Has the church ever gotten together and discussed this, this doctrine and come to some kind of a unified agreement? And I found that the scholars on these forums have no way of defending Romanism against the charge of having completely abandoned the Catholic faith on the Reformation doctrines. And it's certainly true of sola scriptura. No ancient creedal statement has ever appealed to any authority except for the Bible. You won't find any of the ancient Catholic creeds appealing to tradition uh, to support their doctrine, or to the Pope, or to human authority. It's always the authority of the Scripture. A classical scholar, uh, William Webster, said this, The fathers rejected the teaching of an or apostolic oral tradition independent of Scripture as a Gnostic heresy. You see, what was going on in the early church is the Gnostics uh, 
uh, when the, the Christians said, where is that in the Bible? We don't see uh, your doctrine in the Bible. They say, oh, but we got a secret oral tradition that the apostles handed on to us. And what the early church fathers said is, no, the biblical idea of tradition is found in the Bible. You know, it's not a, a concept of something independent from the Scripture. Uh, anyway, let me continue uh, with this quote. He says, The fathers rejected the teaching of an apostolic oral tradition independent of Scripture as a Gnostic heresy. For the church fathers, apostolic tradition or teaching was embodied and preserved in Scripture. He is saying that the early church fathers like Irenaeus, who wrote extensively against the, the, the heresy of Gnosticism, were writing against exactly the same type of claim that Rome is presently claiming, that there is an oral tradition from the apostles. That means that the Roman Catholic Church is not Catholic. In fact, it's better to call them, instead of calling them Roman Catholic Church, they really should be called Roman Gnostic Church, because that is exactly what they are. The church fathers wrote against them, called them heresies, exactly the same things that the Romanists hold to. The respected church historian J.N.D. Kelly says, almost the entire theological effort of the fathers, whether their aims were polemical or constructive, were expended upon what amounted to the exposition of the Bible. Further, it was everywhere taken for granted that for any doctrine to win acceptance, it had first to establish its scriptural basis. So don't think of the, uh, of the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages, and don't think of the early church as being the Romanist church. It was not. Now, granted, it wasn't perfect. We're not perfect, okay? They recognized they were not perfect, and there is going to be a growth of understanding of the Scriptures uh, over time. Uh, but it insisted that to be Catholic, you had to hold to Scripture as being the only authority for faith and practice. So de facto... Rome is not Catholic, and they have no right to use the term. You know what? Most evangelicals today don't have a right to use the term Catholic either. Unfortunately, in recent years, many evangelicals have succumbed to the lust for academic respectability, and they've opted for other authorities. For example, dispensationalists have opted for natural law theory because they don't like the Old Testament uh, case laws. Uh, now, the Bible does speak of natural law being written on our heart, but Paul says it's biblical law written on our hearts. These dispensationalists are adding something new. They are no different than Rome. For example, in the Journal of the Evangelical Theology, dispensationalist Alan Johnson said this, Therefore, an evangelical ethic, which is a fully Christian ethic, though it will necessarily be a serious biblical ethic, will never be merely a biblical ethic. Not all moral obligation is rooted in Scripture. Neither is all moral obligation rooted in natural, uh, uh, yeah, natural moral law. It is important to recognize that there are two chief sources of ethical knowledge that must be incorporated dialogically into any serious evangelical Christian ethic. While Scripture will always be primary and final, it will always stand beside natural moral law knowledge. Evangelicals must come to grips with this more complete understanding of the Christian ethic, especially in the area of social ethics. And so these modern evangelicals are elevating something that they admit is not in the Bible, will never be found in the Bible, to have an equal status with the Bible in terms of ethics. 
And actually, what almost always happens, anytime you elevate another authority, it begins to become greater than the Bible. It begins to contradict the Bible, and that's what happened with Rome. Their tradition began to trump and contradict the Bible, and that's what happens with modern dispensationalism. Their natural moral law theory contradicts the Old Testament case law over and over again. And so as much as dispensationalism dislikes Rome, they're doing something very similar to Rome. With Norman Geisler, Chuck Colson, and other evidentialists agreeing with Johnson that we need more than the Bible for our ethics, we are in desperate need of a reformation. They are saying that we have to go beyond the Scripture, that the Scripture is incomplete, and it's not because the Scripture really is incomplete, it's because they don't like it. They're ashamed of what the Bible says about ethics. But you know, all of us really need to be on guard about elevating the authority of science, psychology, feminist studies, or any other form of man's wisdom and scholarship above the authority of the Scripture. When a pastor exercises authority beyond the Bible, he cannot claim to be Catholic. In fact, he needs to quit saying the Apostles' Creed because he's a liar every time he says it. The second essential feature of sola scriptura, we looked at a few weeks ago, is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. And this is actually a pretty interesting uh, uh, aspect of it because this is Rome's, in the last few decades, this has been Rome's favorite topic to debate on. And I've got boatloads of debate tapes that I've uh, listened to. Uh, Here is what the topic uh, on all of these tapes are, are. Are the Scriptures sufficient for faith and practice. Now you'd think any Protestant worth his salt would be able to defend this, but the sad thing is I've listened to these tapes and they are losing to the Roman Catholic, and the reason they're losing, the only reason, is because they are not consistent in their theology or in their practice on the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, Even some of the Reformed people that I've seen debating these uh, Roman Catholics have lost the debates big time. I listened to uh, I went and attended a, 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 a debate between Jerry Matichix, who was defending the Roman Catholic position, and John Warwick Montgomery, and wow, did he get hammered. It was absolutely embarrassing. Well, let's see if Rome meets the test of Catholicity on the sufficiency of Scripture. Romanist scholar Carl Keating said, it is not true that everything one needs to believe to be saved is in the Bible and nothing needs to be added to the Bible. Later he says the Bible actually denies that it is the complete rule of faith. And you can see numerous quotes from the Council of Trent, the First and Second uh, Vatican Councils of the Roman Catholic Church that say the same thing. They claim the scriptures are not sufficient and they claim that the historical church has never taught that it was sufficient. In other words, they claim they are the Catholics, we are not Catholic. That's what they're claiming. Okay, So we've abandoned the Catholic faith, is their claim. Well, let's, let's look at the first test. Is this an obscure teaching of the Bible, or is it pretty clear? In fact, why don't you turn with me there, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And let's read verses 13 through 16. And keep in mind that the Roman Catholics say the Bible is not even sufficient for salvation. You need all of these additional things that come from uh, so-called holy tradition. 
Okay, 2 Timothy 3, beginning to read at verse 13. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Notice that the scriptures are able to make him wise to salvation. Well, that means the scriptures are sufficient for salvation, right? But he goes on in verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So he, he's not just saying that you can somehow figure out every good work uh, in the scripture. No, it is sufficient to make the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped, for every good work. Now, Rome requires all kinds of good works that even they admit you can't find in the Bible. And so they're saying that Paul here is a liar, in effect. Second Peter chapter 1 says that the scriptures give to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And I've given you many other scriptures before on this topic, so I'm going to assume you've heard those sermons, right? And you're convinced, yeah, slam dunk, this is uh, scriptural, we can see it in the Bible. But when people claim that we, we simply don't understand the scriptures, I think it's helpful to know that you can go to the church fathers and see exactly the same interpretation with them. We could probably give you quotes from over 40 church fathers uh, that I've been reading over the last 25 years. I'm just going to give you two. Athanasius said, quote, The holy and inspired scriptures are fully sufficient for the proclamation of the truth. Not barely sufficient, but fully sufficient. Augustine said, in the plain teaching of Scripture, we find all that concerns our belief and moral conduct. All. We don't need to add a single thing to it. It's sufficient. And again, many quotes could be given to show that it meets the test of antiquity. But the question comes, did these old authors just have some oddball interpretations, or does this meet the test of the universal consent of the church? And I love to go to St. Vincent of Lorraine's in my debates uh, because um, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox always use him to define the three tests of Catholicity. So I say, oh yeah, yeah, I agree with his uh, tests of Catholicity, and they say, you do? And I say, yeah, and then I'll start quoting from him uh, by the way, he lived in the 5th century, 450 A.D. Uh, is when he said this. He said, it's a fundamental axiom, the whole church. So we're talking universality here, that the scriptural canon was sufficient and more than sufficient for all purposes. He said, everybody believes this. Of course the scriptures uh, are sufficient, and he's the go-to guy for what is Catholic and what is not. He said that the, the doctrine of sufficiency is part of the Catholic faith. Let me quote him again. The scriptures are sufficient and more than sufficient for all purposes. Can you see how it's Rome, really, that has abandoned the Catholic faith? They, by definition, are a cult. Now, most of you have not read extensively in the Church Fathers, so you might say, well, maybe he was lying. How can I verify whether St. Vincent of Lorenz is really true when he said this is a universal belief? Everybody believes in the sufficiency of Scripture. Well, there are a lot of scholars who have read all the church fathers and are authorities on them. And, 
And they say uh, the same thing. Uh, <clears throat> let me quote from the brilliant William Cunningham. He spoke of, quote, the constant maintenance during the first three centuries of the supremacy and sufficiency, so he claims both point one and point two that we're, we've already looked at, that both of these uh, are, uh, were there, uh, have universal consent. So during the first three centuries of the supremacy and sufficiency of the sacred scriptures, and the right and duty of all men to read and study them. There is no trace of evidence in the first three centuries that these scriptural principles were denied or doubted, and there is satisfactory evidence that they were steadily and purely maintained. And the same may be said of the writings without exception of many succeeding centuries. There is not the slightest traces of anything like that depreciation of the scriptures that denial of their fitness because of their obscurity and alleged imperfection to be a sufficient rule or standard of faith which stamps so peculiar a guilt and infamy upon popery and tractarianism. There is nothing in the least resembling this. On the contrary, there is a constant reference to Scripture as the only authoritative uh, standard. And as you re read that, uh, um, it's in his... Um, historical theology, you can find that quote. So here's yet another foundational point to which the Reformers aligned themselves with the Catholic faith and Rome abandoned the Catholic faith. It's Rome that came up with something new, and I believe in the Holy Catholic Church because I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, okay? The true Protestants of the Reformation were the true Catholics. Now, it's been many years since the Reformation, but those same battle lines are being drawn within the evangelical church right now. How do we determine what is right or wrong? That's ethics, right? How do we determine what's right or wrong in government, in business, in economics, in medicine? Do we write extensive theological treatises on government and on just war and other things like that, like Philippe Duplessis Mornay wrote? Do we go to the scripture uh, or do we go to psychology to determine uh, solutions to sinful behavior. On these and many other issues, Protestant Christians are abandoning the Reformation by saying that the Scriptures are not sufficient to deal with the complexities of life. Now, as far as I'm concerned, they're calling Paul a liar because Paul says that they are sufficient to thoroughly equip us for every good work, and that includes the businessmen in our midst. It includes the, the doctors and the politicians. And so we're faced with the age-old question of the sufficiency of Scripture. The Romanists, and now some Protestants, are abandoning the Catholic position, and I am a Catholic on this issue, and I hope every one of you are. We are the ones who are in continuity with the true church of all ages, and what Jude calls the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Not Rome, not the Eastern Orthodox Church, not the Ethiopian Church, not the Coptic Church. Well, let's move on. The third Roman attack against the doctrine of sola scriptura came against the completeness of Scripture, and the Huguenots had to fight on this front as well. So we've covered already the, the authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, now it's the completeness of Scripture. And the Roman Catholic Church has denied absolutely that the Scriptures were complete. They had to because in 1548, they added a bunch of books to the Bible. They added the Apocrypha, right? 
Those books were around long before Christ, and so my question is, why did Christ and the apostles not accept them as Scripture? He knew they existed. Christ and the apostles referred to the Old Testament over 600 times, and yet not once did they ever quote from the Romanist apocryphal books. Now, the Coptics claim that they, uh, Jude quotes from Enoch, and we'll save that for another question because they're just a tiny segment. Almost no branch of the church accepts the book of uh, Enoch. Um, I can show you definitively why they, uh, Jude did not quote from their book of Enoch. The, the vocabulary is different. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's their claim. But Christ and the apostles never once referred to any Romanist apocryphal book. But they did endorse the Hebrew canon, and the Hebrew canon excluded the Apocrypha. You see, the fundamental problem with Rome is in seeing man as having authority to canonize the Scripture. Over and over again in my debates, they keep saying that the church is the mother of Scripture, or the church determines Scripture. The church determines canon, and, and we have to say no, only God can do that, and James um, um, forbids any man from judging the Scriptures. You see, the moment a canonical book was written, God added it to the developing canon. And in Isaiah 8, God anticipates the closing of the canon and commands that after 70 A.D., when he says that uh, the vision and testimony will be bound up and sealed, closed forever, after that time, he says, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. After 70 A.D., he indicates there is nothing more that can be added to the Bible. Daniel 9 prophesies that before Jerusalem would be destroyed again, prophet and vision would be sealed up. So once the last book of the Scripture was written, which is the book of Revelation, God declared this, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So this is serious stuff. Uh, the, the, the adding of the Apocrypha is an issue that could spell the difference between hell or heaven for people. This is not stuff that you could just overlook and say it's just an you know, intramural debate, it's not a big deal. No, the Scripture was closed and the Council of Trent had no authority to add to it. Now, if you want a ton more ammo on the apostolicity of this, I've written a booklet that shows how the Bible itself describes this growing canon, when it would be closed, how it would be closed, all of the details within the Bible itself. We can determine that there's only 66 books in the Bible. And if you wonder, how in the world could you do that? You have to read the book. Uh, it, it, it's there. But that was the position of the Huguenots and all of the other Protestants. They said that the Bible is self-authenticating. The church never determined the canon. It was determined by God alone through his inspired, infallible uh, prophets. And uh, again, my book, I think, gives massive biblical evidence for that. By the time you're done with it, I think you'll see that it does meet this first test. But does my interpretation of the Scripture have the witness of antiquity? Does the church's understanding of the apostolic test say the same thing? I say, yes, it does. All over the place it does. Jerome said about Judith Tobit in the books of Maccabees that even though they could be read for history, quote, the church does not admit them among the canonical scriptures, unquote. 
And he was the one who translated the Bible that the Roman Catholics continue to use to this day. Uh, Jerome lists the books uh, in our Protestant canon, and he says this, whatever falls outside these must be set apart among the Apocrypha, which are not in the canon. And that position was maintained all the way up to the Council of Trent in the 1500s, which was Rome's reaction to the Protestant Reformation. The early church father Irenaeus, uh, whom again, I will remind you, was a disciple of the Apostle Paul, uh, Apostle John, called those who treated the Apocrypha as scripture, he called them heretics. That was his term. That means that Irenaeus is calling those in the modern Romanist church heretics, okay? He complained that heretics in his day, quote, adduce an unspeakable number of apocryphal and spurious writings to bewilder the minds of foolish men and of such as are ignorant of the scriptures of the truth. Melito of Sardis, Cyril of uh, Jerusalem, and many others show a recognition of the difference between inspired scriptures and the Apocrypha. Josephus said about the Jews that the Apocrypha was rejected, uh, and he says, quote, from Artaxerxes until our time. So whether you're thinking about the Catholic Church of the Old Testament, Catholic Church of the New Testament, uh, uh, they treated the Apocryphal books as outside the canon, and they could be used as history, but even then it was not infallible history, not reliable always. And so the Reformation doctrine of the completeness of Scripture clearly meets the second Catholicity test. Now, there are many, many individual testimonies I could give on this, but does it have the universal affirmation of the church? Yes, it does. Church historian William Webster said, the church as a whole never accepted the apocryphal books as part of the canon of Scripture after the councils of Carthage and Hippo. This was the view that was held throughout the ensuing centuries of the history of the church. John Cozen, in his book, A Scholastical History of the Canon, documents some 52 major ecclesiastical writers and theologians from the 8th to the 16th centuries who held to the view of Jerome. So for a long period of history, uh, this was the view that was held. Rome is not Catholic on this doctrine either. They are a cult. By the way, you might think it's harsh to call somebody uh, a, a member of a cult, but the word cult simply means a deviation from a historical consensus. So every religion can have a cult. Any sect of Islam that deviates, like the skirmishes, that deviates from the historical consensus of Islam is considered an Islamic cult. And that's true of every religion, a deviation from a historical census. So anybody who deviates from the Catholic doctrine is by definition a cult. It's a Christian cult in this case, and Rome is a Christian cult. And Jude commands us to contend earnestly for this faith. Now, you might be thinking, that's really a moot point. Why do we even need to study this? No Protestant that I know uh, accepts the Apocrypha. Well, even that's not entirely true. I know some Protestants who not only accept the Roman Catholic Apocrypha, they accept the weird books from the Ethiopian canon, like uh, first through fourth uh, 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 Esdras and Enoch, uh, books like that. But besides that, our Protestant problems go way beyond that. Look in the bookstores and notice some of the new things that are being pawned off as God's revelation to the church today, and you'll realize that the, the Protestants have their own form of Apocrypha. Now, some of these books almost seem to be mimicking the scriptures 
in terms of authority. Some of them is God's revelation in King James, and I'm thinking, wow, God can't speak modern English? Uh, it, just weird books out there, and the charismatic churches are eating this up. Any revelation that God gives to us, and I don't deny that He writes the law in our hearts, that He gives us illumination to understand the Scriptures. Those are forms of revelation. I don't deny uh, that God gives us guidance, but that's an entirely different category uh, than the Bible. Uh, it is certainly not treated as infallible, which is the next point. So I'm a Catholic, or another way of saying it is that I'm a Reformed Christian because I believe in a completed Bible. The fourth attack against the doctrine of sola scriptura was Rome's insistence that the Bible is not the only infallible thing in life. Okay? The reformer said, no, the Bible alone is infallible or inerrant. The Romanists claim tradition is equally infallible. They say the Pope can speak ex cathedra in an infallible, inerrant way. Now, actually, modern reformed people, they're all over the map on this. Uh, a lot of them believe in limited inerrancy, and by that I mean the same kind of weird doctrine that some evangelicals are buying, that the Bible's sort of inerrant for salvation issues, but it's not inerrant when it speaks to history or geology or geography or things like that. It could be making mistakes. You probably heard the Pope recently say that he didn't think Genesis 1 is historical, right? Uh, and so there's that kind of thing that's been coming out in recent days. But that's uh, clearly not the ancient Catholic view. Um, even after Trent, the, the Roman church actually did hold to inerrancy of Scripture for a long time. They've kind of, uh, they've kind of abandoned that, but I'm not even going to deal with that issue. I just want to deal with, are there any other infallible inerrant sources? That's the question in debate. Let's look at the Scripture. Psalm 118, verse 8 says, It is better to put your trust in the Lord than to put your confidence in man. Why? Because man will let you down. Man makes mistakes. Uh, Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar. Anybody who says he has never lied in his life <laughs> is unbiblical, right? Let God be true and every man a liar. There is nothing but the Bible that is infallibly true. Every man will fail because we're human. We're not inerrant. Isaiah 34 says, search from the book of the Lord and read, not one of these shall fail, verse 16, but goes on to say, man can and will. Proverbs talks about man failing. Five times the Bible says God alone is wise. Any wisdom we get is wisdom given from God. And there are some things we will never know for sure. God's word alone cannot be broken, John 10, verse 35. Now, obviously, Rome is going to respond and say, hey, we're, we're just saying God speaks through the church, and God speaks through it. It's not the Pope speaking. It's God speaking through him. But remember, we've already disposed of that argument with our previous points, uh, that there cannot be uh, any other addition to the Scripture, any other authority. So we've already dealt with that uh, when we looked at Isaiah uh, 8, verse 20. Now, Here's the question. Is this just an odd interpretation of the Huguenots or of Phil Kaiser, or does this have the testimony of antiquity? Well, I believe this is the Catholic position. Augustine said, I have learned to hold the Scriptures alone inerrant. And I've got similar quotes from Clement of Rome, Basil the Great, John Chrysostom, Gregory Nyssa, 
Cyril of Jerusalem, Anastasius of Antioch. I've, I've got just boatloads of quotes on these kinds of things if you guys are ever debating Roman Catholics on this. But I love uh, Augustine's statement. It's so succinct. I've learned to hold the scriptures alone inerrant. And that was an opinion adopted by the church. Pope Gregory the Great around 600 AD said that anyone who elevated the Pope above other bishops was the precursor to the Antichrist. <laughs> In other words, he said, I'm just an equal amongst other elders. I, there's nothing special. He was acting like a moderator. You know, every denomination's got a moderator to try to facilitate administration. And John Calvin said he was the last of the great popes or the great moderators, you know, in, in the church. That's all he was doing. So, so much for uh, papal infallibility. Pope Honorius was excommunicated for heresy for appealing to a teaching of Pope as being ex cathedra, as being infallible, claiming prophetic infallibility. He was excommunicated as a heretic for doing that. Now contrast that with what modern Rome says. Let me quote from William Webster. He said, in the Roman Catholic Church, I was taught that papal infallibility can be validated from Scripture in Matthew 16, 18, Luke 22, 32, and John 21, verses 15 through 17. I was further taught that its interpretation of these passages was given by the unanimous consent of the fathers, get that, unanimous consent of the fathers, and that anyone that contradicts this teaching was to be anathematized. Let him go to hell is, is what anathematized means. He goes on. These dogmas are simply untrue. No father, doctor, theologian, or canonist of the church for the first 12 centuries interpreted those passages in agreement with the Roman Catholic Church. They never interpreted these verses to even imply the teaching of papal infallibility. The universal teaching and belief of the church was that the bishops of Rome were fallible, that they could and did err. Brian Tierney says, what can be proved beyond doubt is that no public teaching affirming infallibility of the Pope was transmitted to the canonists of the 12th and 13th centuries. The theologians of the 13th century could not possibly have taken the doctrine of papal infallibility from the canonical tradition of the church because the doctrine simply did not exist in the writings of the canonists. Uh, Luther and the other reformers uh, quoted extensively from early Catholic creeds and writers to show that the Roman church had departed from the Catholic faith in this regard. Cyril of Jerusalem said, we ought not to deliver even the most casual remark without the Holy Scriptures, nor be drawn aside by mere probabilities and the artifices of argument. Do, then, do not then believe me, because I tell you these things, unless you receive from the Holy Scriptures the proof of what is set forth. Compared to Scripture, even the highest authority is mere probability, according to him. Okay? Now, Protestants obviously don't have a pope or don't have formal tradition that we feel ourselves bound by. But ironically, many Protestants have their own uh, kinds of secular infallibility. We've got secular popes. What gets changed when there's a conflict between science and the Bible? Well, in church after church, over and over, you just say, oh, well, I guess we better reinterpret the Bible in order to accommodate science. Uh, what gets changed 
when uh, there's uh, other contradictions uh, between the Bible and the age of the earth, evolution, archaeology, formation of language, feminism, or other things. It's almost always the Bible that gets reinterpreted. In fact, in the last decade, there have been prominent evangelicals who have gone soft on homosexuality because they accord such respect to the declarations of the American Psychological uh, Association. Science has become a pope for many Christians, and we need to realize that science is constantly changing. In fact, I just downloaded yesterday, if you guys want a copy of this, it's a 14-page paper. I think it's just a brilliant paper written by a Whitfield Theological Seminary uh, student on how every scientific pronouncement is, is um, fallible. It's just remarkable paper. If you want it, I can get you a copy of it. I, I just really, I really love that. So however intimidating their marshalling of evidences may be, you'll see them changing every decade or so. There is only one infallible thing in life. If you're part of the Catholic faith, there is only one infallible thing in life. And I prefer to be a Catholic in the Reformation sense of that term. Uh, with Augustine, we must say, I have learned to hold the scriptures alone inerrant. Now, the next aspect of sola scriptura that we uh, need to examine is that we can't pick and choose. We must accept the authority of the whole Bible. And I mentioned earlier that uh, the Pope recently has chosen not to accept the authority of Genesis chapter 1 on how the earth and this universe came into being. I won't say a whole lot about this except to say we uh, Protestants are just as guilty. Many refuse to preach the whole Bible. Some people call themselves New Testament Christians. I've heard that over and over growing up. They reject the Old Testament as being for Israel. Other people just reject certain portions. They don't like the imprecatory Psalms. And I've had a number of people say, oh, Christians can't do that. that, 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 that. Anyway, um, I think you get the point. Uh, so we're just as guilty. And so whether it's throwing out the Old Testament or only throwing out certain portions of the Bible, Protestantism has to a large degree abandoned the Catholic faith on this issue as well. So let's test it. First test, what does the Bible say? Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And I'll leave you to my previous sermon on Sola Scriptura to see numerous references that affirm this Reformation doctrine. But does it meet the test of antiquity? Did people going way back interpret the Scripture the same way? And they did. Justin Martyr wrote extensively against the Marcionites who only followed the New Testament. They called themselves New Testament Christians, okay? And a lot of the criticisms that you hear from evangelicals against biblical law and against the imprecatory Psalms as being barbaric and being outmoded sounds exactly, exactly like the arguments of the Marcionites against the Old Testament. Clement of Alexandria complained of heretics outside the church in these words. They will not make use of all the scriptures. And then they'll not quote them entire, nor is the body and texture of prophecy prescribed. But selecting ambiguous expressions, they rest them to their own opinions, gathering a few expressions here and there, not looking to the sense, but making use of the mere words. 
But he complained, they will not make use of all the scriptures. A Catholic receives the whole Bible, and in the ecumenical creeds, that became clear. Now, if you wonder why we preach so frequently from the Old Testament, it's because it's the majority of the Bible. <laughs> of course, we're going to preach a lot from that. Never despise the Old Testament. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says the entire Old Testament is profitable. Everything Paul taught, he proved from the Old Testament. That's what Luke tells us in, in the book of Acts. Everything Paul taught, he proved from the Old Testament. He praised the Bereans for checking everything he taught from the Old Testament. And so if you're going to be apostolic, you're going to be a Berean, you're going to check the scriptures daily to see if this is so. Now there's one more attack against sola scriptura that I want to address, and that is whether every believer has the right and the duty to study the scriptures and see if the doctrines taught are really there. Okay? So this is the third test of Catholicity. You individually need to be able to see it in the scripture. Once it's explained to you, you need to be able to see it. You can't just have a blind leap of faith. Uh, when Philippe Duplessis Mornay was nine years old, he was traveling back from college. Oh yeah, he was already quite the scholar in college at the age of nine. But he was traveling back uh, to his dad's funeral, and there was a priest that was accompanying him. And uh, he was asking the priest questions uh, about where in the Bible does it say, you know, that this doctrine is there. And the priest really soundly rebuked him and said that he should not ever read the scriptures. Uh, that it's dangerous to do so, and he said, why? Well, he said, you could fall into Protestant uh, heresies, and, and he said, well, I can disprove the, the, these heretical schismatics looking at the scriptures, and the priest basically said, you just need to trust the church. You don't read the Bible, trust the church. Well, that did not sit well with Philippe Duplessis Mornay, just nod and nod at him, so he finally got a scripture, and he started systematically examining every Roman doctrine as he read and reread the scripture. Now, this guy was a genius, but anyway. Uh, little by little, all of these doctrines fell to the ground, and at the ripe old age of 12, he professed faith in Jesus Christ and made an incredible doctrinal statement. You know, he became a Huguenot. Now, I, I use that as an illustration to show that even a nine-year-old can understand the scriptures. Well, that's probably a bad illustration because so, he was so smart. But we'll give a, a scripture that, uh, that, that definitely does show this. Did you know that Rome resisted efforts to translate the scriptures into the common language or to preach in the common la language? They had to preach in Latin. They had to use the Latin Bible. And the reason was they didn't trust uh, people to read the Bible for themselves. Now, in America and in other places, this has softened since Vatican II, and you do see them doing Bible studies, and that's a good thing. Praise the Lord. Some of them may get converted that way. But in my discussions with even these Romanists who are studying the Bible in English, here's what frequently happens. When I press home the ways that the Scripture clearly contradicts uh, their teaching, and they can see it, and, and they can't argue with you on it, they fall back on the old view that says that the, only the church can really understand the text. And uh, even though it seems like it's right, we need to follow what the church teaches on this. When push comes to shove, it's not the Bible that is their authority, it's the church. 
And interestingly, it doesn't help to point out that you can find many contradictory teachings amongst Romanist teachers. They say, well, that's all the more reason to trust the church. And I say, why? I mean, they're contradicting themselves all down, uh, uh, down through these past uh, uh, three or four centuries. But uh, I don't know how many times I've had Romanists quote me the passage on Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip asks him if he understands what he's reading, and the eunuch says, how can I unless someone guides me? And so the Roman Catholic says, we all need an infallible guide. Now, I am not denying that we all need teachers. The Bible says we all need teachers. But uh, uh, Philip wasn't infallible. He was simply a teacher. I'm not infallible. I am simply a teacher, and once a teacher has taught something well, you ought to be able to see it in the scripture. Say, yeah, I didn't see it before, but now that you showed it to me, I can see it. That's the point. Well, we've already shown that the true Catholic faith insists there is no infallible guide, no other authority other than the Bible that is infallible. And so like the Bereans, we need to be skeptical. We need to search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. There's a reason why you can't blindly follow Phil Kaiser or any other teacher for that matter. I'm not infallible. And if what I'm teaching does not meet the three tests of Catholicity, it doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means you need to check it out more carefully. And I need to hold to it less dogmatically. It may be absolutely true, and I may be convinced of it, but prudence says not to be unreasonably dogmatic until at some point in history it becomes the Catholic faith, okay? It's universally accepted. It's been true all along, and it's been the Catholic faith all along, but it's a recognizing of that. Now, you can have a lot more confidence in doctrine if those three tests of Catholicity are met. Do I see it in the Bible? Is it historical? Is it creedal? Calvin and the Reformers believed that all Reformed doctrines meet those three tests. Westminster Confession of Faith is really an ecumenical document. It was a Catholic creed. They said that even creeds and councils can err, so we're not saying that just because it was embraced by the Catholic Church makes it right. Nothing but the Bible is infallible. But the three tests of Catholicity, just think of them as a safety mechanism to keep us from making our own self-interpretation into a pope, a self-pope. Too many evangelicals are self-popes. They have raised their mind above everything else, and that's a real danger. Now, let me put this final caution this way. Doubts that you have in your own ability to understand the Bible, and we can have reasonable doubts on that, right, should not drive you away from studying the Bible and into blindly trusting the church or blindly trusting Phil Kaiser. That's one extreme. But the other extreme is just as bad and I think maybe even more dangerous. Here's the other extreme. Doubts of the church's interpretations should not drive us to trusting ourselves so much that we treat our interpretations as infallible. See, I don't trust people who say, I don't need books. I don't need teachers. It's just the Holy Spirit in me. I just don't trust people who have that. It's a, a, a gross arrogance, a gross pride, and it's grossly unbiblical. All through the New Testament, God says that he gave teachers as gifts to the church, and we need to value those teachers, and we need to be learning from those teachers. First uh, Timothy 3, verse 15, says that the church is intended by God to be, quote, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, Romanists like to throw that verse at you to say, you just got to trust us. We're the pillar and ground of the truth. 
but the Reformed understanding of that verse is that the church must be the place in which the truth is grounded, okay? Uh, You don't ditch the church. When we pit our interpretations against historical theology, we are going to be heading to trouble at some point or another. Most of the errors that you see on the web come because people have divorced themselves from God's teachers and from the historical church. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Okay, that's where the, the, first, uh, the second two tests, uh, why they're so important. God has ordained for his truth to be more and more established in the truth. It's the pillar and ground of the truth. Not in the blind way that's spoken of by Rome, but in the historically developing way spoken of by the Reformation. And evangelicals might say, but the Holy Spirit will guide me. Well, that's true. But he has also guided others in ways that he has not guided you. We need each other. It is non-covenantal to think that we need to reinvent the wheel every generation. Disagreements on doctrine should drive us to read the Bible for ourselves, see what the ancient church said about it, see if there's any other teachers that hold to the same viewpoint, go back to the Bible again, see if we've missed anything or they've missed anything. The Reformers insisted that though there are some hard parts of Scripture, that most Scripture is easily understood and is clear. Now, is what I have just said biblical? Yes, it is. Paul told Timothy that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. That's a remarkable statement. That's uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. We love to go on to verses 16 and 17 that prove the other five points. But if we miss this verse and its implication, we don't have the groundwork for for this uh, last point. All of the other points uh, will tend to fall apart as well. This verse indicates that the scriptures can be known even by a child. Paul indicates that from childhood, it is your responsibility to study the scriptures. And if we cannot understand the scriptures, in other words, if this point is not true, then all of the other points fall to the ground. By the way, um, if you want a $10 word, you love those words, right? The reformers called this the perspicuity of scripture that it's most of it, there are some hard places, but the vast majority of Scripture is easily understood. That's perspicuity of Scripture. Paul praised the Bereans in Acts 17.11. He said these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. In that, they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. If you search the scriptures daily, you're acting like a true Catholic. If you don't study the scriptures, you just blindly trust the church to interpret it for you, you're acting like a Romanist. And if you say, hey, I've got the scriptures, I don't need to listen to Paul or to the church uh, teachers uh, that he ordained, then you're acting like an American individualist. I'm trying to help you navigate these false ways of approaching doctrine. Now, does this responsibility to search the scriptures meet the test of antiquity? Yes. For the first 1,200 years of church history, you find the church desiring the common man to know the scriptures in their own language. In fact, they were passionate about it. The Bible was translated into Latin, Syriac, Coptic, Gothic, Armenian, 
Ethiopic, Georgian, Nubian, Old High German, Persian, Provincial, and the Slavonic languages. In fact, in the three-volume Cambridge History of the Bible, it shows that it was not until the 14th and the 15th centuries that friars and other orders began to vigorously oppose the translation of the scriptures into the common language and preaching in the common language. That's, that's pretty remarkable. And yet, despite that opposition, as late as 1394, a translation of the Gospels into English was approved by Archbishop Arundel. Contrast that with popery. People were burnt at the stake later for translating the Bible. He approved it in 1394. That just shows how far things went astray the next 150 years before the Reformation. And that attitude that every believer should hear the Bible in their own language had universal affirmation. William Cunningham spoke, quote, of the constant maintenance during the first three centuries of the supremacy and sufficiency of the sacred scriptures and the right and duty of all men to read and study them. Now, at the time of, by the time of Tyndale and the other reformers, Rome had abandoned the Catholic faith, and astonishingly, they killed people in, in England for teaching their children to recite the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed in English. If, if they quizzed your kids, came into your home, and asked, can you, can you say the Lord's Prayer, and the kid could rattle off the Lord's Prayer, you were killed. Just astonishing. They killed you if you owned a Bible. Now, if you were to trace out the other four rallying cries of the Reformation, you would find that they too meet the three tests of Catholicity. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Uh, you could look at all kinds of other doctrines too. Two office, elder, deacon. That was in the early church. You know, there were no popes. Uh, there were moderators, and they said that they're just equals. They just had a function administratively. Uh, you could go through all kinds of doctrines. So why do we celebrate Reformation Day year after year after year? Shouldn't we let bygones be bygones? Well, we celebrate it year after year after year because these old heresies and problems keep arising. Catholicity is an important teaching in our day and age when everyone is doing that which is right in his own eyes, theologically. People love innovation, but theological innovation is disastrous. When I think of modern Protestants, I think of Jeremiah 6, verse 16, which calls out, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. People don't like the old ways. They like innovation. What is the newest psychological fad? What's the newest interpretation of Scripture? What's the newest scientific theory? What's the newest insights on male-female role relationships? And God says, ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. And I think these six points of sola scriptura can help you to avoid some of the awful extremes that are out there. If you look at your outline, just real quick, points one, four, and six can help you avoid a problem of the still water revival types of reformed people up in Edmonton, Canada, and I name them because they have been a scourge in the church, a legalistic scourge where they say, if you don't believe what the Scottish reformers, even if it's never been pronounced in the church, exactly what they did and everything that they did, 
they write you off as being outside the church, okay? And this says that that is nonsense, it's ridiculous. Points two and three help Christians to avoid dogmatism in their guidance. Too many Christians have said, well, I talked to a pastor in the PCA church who was getting a divorce. I said, you don't have biblical grounds for divorce. And we walked through the scriptures for two hours. And he agreed with me. It's not in the scripture. And he said, well, it's not God's perfect will, but it is God's permissive will because God has guided me. Well, there's his guidance trumping the scripture, right? So that point will help you to avoid dogmatism and guidance. Point three helps us to avoid going to the world for guidance. Point five helps us to avoid dispensationalism. Point six helps us to avoid cults. Now, I may have engaged in overkill this morning, I don't know, but I do call you as a congregation to no longer see Rome as a Catholic church and to strive to be Catholic by embracing all six points of sola scriptura we've looked at, by avoiding the extremes of individualism or blindly trusting the church. The three tests of Catholicity are biblical, and I think they're very, very much needed today. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and we love it, and we thank you that you have been faithful to send your spirit down through the centuries uh, to protect your church. You have given teachers to ground your church in the truth. You have uh, uh, given these tests of historicity and antiquity and apostolicity, and I pray, Father, that we would be faithful in applying them and not be going off to extremes but that we would seek the old paths, and uh, even as we seek to be reformed and constantly reforming. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.